And I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew, the 16th chapter. So we continue our study here in Matthew, and Matthew 16, I want to remind you that this chapter, as we mentioned last week, is a pivotal, pivotal chapter, and in a very real sense, we've come to some very pivotal verses. And I say that because of the important teaching here in regard to the church. Uh, what is the New Testament church? And I've found that the majority of Christians cannot really give solid answers to what a New Testament church really is. Many times uh, people are quick to parrot Bible footnotes or preachers or commentaries, and they haven't searched the Scriptures for themselves. And so we're zeroing in on a particular verse this morning, and we find it here in verse 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and Jesus is uh, talking to Peter, and he says, And I say also unto thee that thou, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the precious word of God. We thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to open it and to examine it, to hear it preached, to study it, and to, most of all, live by it and obey it. We thank you, Lord, for each one that's come this morning, and we pray your blessing upon this time together in the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what kind of church or what type of church was Jesus talking about? Is this church active today? Was he talking about a local church? Or was he talking about a universal, invisible church? Well, what I'm going to say this morning is not some strange doctrine, although there perhaps will be those here this morning that have never heard it or know very little about it. And I want to warn you this morning, this message probably more instructional than anything else. Uh, There may not be so much preaching here other than to challenge you to be students of the Word and carefully study things out and be obedient to what the Lord tells you. And so we're going to look at this more at the nature of the church and when it began and how God is protecting it. I asked the question, was he talking about a local church or a universal invisible church? I think I would say with one uh, preacher that uh, uh, said it this way, he said, there may uh, be a universal church, but that is not the overwhelming evidence of Scripture uh, concerning the church. And I don't want to make this particular subject matter a hobby horse or anything. I just want to address this as we come to it in this portion of our study of Matthew. And so the first thing we need to do is look at a definition of church, a definition of church. As we look at the church that Jesus built, it would be wise to set down a proper definition. 
I believe a church is an organized, autonomous, visible, local band of immersed believers who have New Testament officers, perform New Testament ordinances, preach and teach the whole counsel of God, and are actively engaged in carrying out the Great Commission. Now the word church, in used in our King James Bible, is uh, and based upon the received text, which the, in the Greek is the word ekklesia. The Greek word comes from a combination of two root words, ek, meaning from, and kleo, which means to call out. Uh, there can be no question, I believe, as the basic meaning of the original language. The church is an assembly of people called out to attend an organized meeting. Now the word ecclesia, translated church in our Bibles, occurs 112 times in the Greek New Testament, referring to God's assembly, the New Testament church. And again, this is based on the received text, which is the basis for our King James Bible. And our text this morning is the first use of the word ecclesia, or church, in the Bible. And one of the principles of hermeneutics, or Bible interpretation, is to see how a word is used the first time. It's called the first mention principle. So was Jesus talking about a universal, mystical something or other here? Or was he talking about establishing the institution of the local church, the local assembly of saved people to carry out his work? I believe, again, the overwhelming evidence points to it being a local church. And the universal church theory has been used over the years, I think, to de-emphasize the local church. Uh, those who support this kind of thinking use it as an excuse to neglect the local church. I've heard people say this, Why do I need to go to church? Church is wherever I am because I'm a part of the church. Or they might say, why should I become a member of something I'm already a part of? When I got saved, I became a member of the church. Well, I don't believe that's rightly dividing the Word of God. Because nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. I, when I was thinking about this, uh, again, as I was going over my message uh, this morning, I couldn't help but think of a little story about one of my new grandsons. Uh, we have four new grandsons. Uh, usually people get a grandson here uh, one at a time or there, you know, or a grandchild. Well, our daughter is uh, foster caring four boys that they're adopting. They're in the process of adopting. And the, there's a new one. Uh, he's only a few weeks old. And then there's one that's going to be five here next month. And he uh, uh, has kind of a speech impediment, and he can't always understand exactly what he's saying. But uh, his dad recently heard him say, why do we need that baby? <laughs> At least that's what, what came out. Why do we need that baby? His dad said, what? Why do we need that baby? Well, he wasn't saying, why do I need that baby? He was saying, why do we feed that baby? Seems like that's what all that baby does, is eat and eat and eat and sleep and eat and sleep. And every time he wakes up and cries, we give him a bottle, you know. Well, you know, sometimes I think people have that same attitude. Why do I need the church? 
Why do I need to go to church? Well, it's because you need to be fed. You see, just like that little baby needs that bottle over and over and over again throughout the day, you and I as believers need to be fed the Word of God. And that's what we try to do here at Spooner Baptist Church is feed, feed you the Word of God. Now this so-called universal church has caused many, I think, to err from the scriptural teaching of the new uh, or the local New Testament church. Uh, much of the confusion, I think, is propagated by universal churchites, we'll call them, because uh, they fail to differentiate and make the distinction between the family of God, the kingdom of God, and the church of God. Notice there's a confusion about the distinction of terminology. First, there's the family of God. It refers to all saved people of all ages. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. All who are born again in are born again into the family of God. Think about the Bible terminology that's used and maybe I think sometimes misused. For instance, when we talk about born again, that's a family term, isn't it? Being born, when you have a child born into your family, that's a family term. And so it is with uh, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You must become a part of the family of God. Other places where you use uh, terms like the sons of God or the children of God. Uh, we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. These are all family terms. And so I can be a brother or have a sister in Christ uh, in another town, another city, another country. And because they've been saved, I've been saved, we're a part of the family of God. There's also the term, the kingdom of God. It refers to the sphere of Christian profession and includes all professed saved on earth at any given time. Christ again told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom is composed of those who receive the king. As the Lord said, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter in. Mark chapter 10 and verse 15. There, this was the kingdom of which John the Baptist spoke of as the forerunner. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3. John was the herald of the kingdom which Christ came to establish in the hearts of men. His keynote message was the same as that of his forerunner. It says in Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, as we're talking about the third designation this morning, the church of God. The church of God refers to a local, visible assembly of saved, baptized believers. Now, in rightly dividing the word of God, the dedicated student will find that there's only one church in the scripture. And that church will be a local, visible congregation of baptized, born-again believers. The church of God is never, used of any, uh, is never used of any institution except of an assembly of, or congregation of uh, baptized believers in some locality. For example, the church of God at Corinth. 
and over and over, uh, the church of God at Ephesus uh, and various places where Paul addressed local churches. The individual church is the only kind of church that God has on this earth today. Uh, There's only one family of God composed of all the redeemed of all ages in heaven and earth. But there are thousands and thousands of churches, churches of God on this earth. And when a person is born again, he's born into God's family, uh, they are in the family of God forever. When they're born again, they also enter God's kingdom. That relationship is for life. When they die, they pass out of the kingdom of God on this earth and enter the heavenly kingdom according to 2 Timothy 4.18. And so after a person is born, has been born again, they're not yet in the church of God. When you're saved, you're not yet in the church of God, but are now a scriptural subject for admission to the church of God. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. You see, a church member is not something a person, a church membership is not something a person gets with salvation, but is subsequent blessing they receive after salvation by being added to the church. You know, baptism is not essential to admission into being a a member of the family of God. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, But baptism is essential to admission into the church of God. People are born anew into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, but they are baptized into the church of God according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one Spirit. That one body that Paul refers to in that verse was the church of God at Corinth. Now many people like to make that application. Well, that's a universal church. We're in all a part of the same body. But you know, the, again, this terminology that Paul's using, to, uh, using here is the idea of a body uh, of believers. He's Uh, The context here is he's talking to the Christians at Corinth, the church at Corinth. He says in verse 27, a little bit down uh, in that chapter, he says, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. You see, the Holy Spirit did not baptize the church at Corinth, neither was the Spirit the element in which they were baptized. When it says in one spirit, they were baptized in water into the church of Corinth. If you are careful to note the context and to whom Paul's letters were written to, you'll come up with a correct interpretation of Scripture. But if you come to this passage with a preconceived notion, then you'll think uh, he's talking about the universal church. But you have to put that idea into the context in order for it to be there. A New Testament doctrine knows nothing of a mystical, universal, invisible church, no matter how many doctrinal statements you might read. Many times those who hold to that teaching do so to excuse themselves from being faithful to any local church. Well, I don't have to go to a church. I don't have to go to the church house. I don't have to meet with with other Christians because I'm I'm a believer and I'm already a part of the church. Well, let me ask you some questions about that kind of church. Think about this for a moment. 
What is the purpose of such an invisible church? How can, what can it accomplish? How can it carry out the commands issued by our Lord? An invisible, universal something or other. And often when Dr. Weeks would teach Baptist history, he'd go, ooh, something or other. When I took uh, Baptist history from Dr. Weeks at Maranatha, But he would say, along with me this morning, he would say, that kind of a church is powerless. For it has no address, locale, or building anywhere here on earth. It has no body, tangibility, or definable framework. It has no meetings or assemblies or meeting places on earth. It has no discipline or parliamentary procedure. It has no baptism, thus disobeying Christ's command. It has no Lord's Supper, thus ignoring Christ's command. And it has no deacons, has no pastors, those two offices of the church. It has no choir, organist, pianist, music director. It has no treasure, collection, or budget. It has no missionary collection or fellowship fund. It has no moderator, chairman, or presiding officer. It has no clerk, records, or membership role. It has no prayer meetings has no business meetings, has no evangelistic meetings or evangelistic efforts, has no election of trustees. It has no messengers, delegates, conferences, or conventions. It has no identity, likeness, or personality. It has no great commission or right to baptize anyone. It has no responsibility or accountability. It has no organism, organization, arrangement, or constitution. It has no association with sister churches of any kind. It has no missionaries or teachers. It has no bylaws, jurisprudence, or rules of order. And then it has no name. It's just obscure. It's dim. It's shadowy. It's misty. It's hazy. It's too invisible. It has no Sunday schools. It has no youth groups or camps or rallies. So what does it have? Did Christ build this kind of a church? I say no. For such a minus church needs no one to build it. What is there to build? Well, this ambiguous teaching that there is some mystical, invisible church clouds the fact that the word church, as used in the New Testament, is sometimes referred to as an institutional sense. For instance, we go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians. This has often been used as a proof text for a universal church, but again, who is he addressing? He is addressing the local church in the city of Ephesus. He says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also love the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present him to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Paul here is talking about the church as an institution, the local church. It's not referring to an invisible universal church. The idea being conveyed that it's of an institutional principle, such as the institution of marriage, or the institution of the home, or the institution of government, or the institution of education. There must be a visible family. When you talk about the home, you're talking about a family. 
They're not some invisible thing somewhere out there. Uh, when you talk about the government, uh, you're talking about uh, a governing body. If you're talking about education, you're talking about assembled school. When Paul speaks of the home in this passage, no one thinks, well, there's a universal invisible husband or wife someplace. He's speaking of an institutional principle that only exists in a tangible, visible form. And so the church, the body of Christ, God's assembly is always local, visible, and specific. You cannot have an invisible, unassembled, universal body. Now, let me just sum this point up by giving you that definition we started with, with a church spoken of in the New Testament. A church is an organized, autonomous, visible, local band of immersed believers who have New Testament officers, perform New Testament ordinances, preach and teach the whole counsel of God, and are actively engaged in carrying out the Great Commission. Now, let's look secondly this morning at the inception of the church. Who started this church? Uh, when did it begin? Well, I believe we have the answer to those questions here in our study of Matthew 16. Many believe the church started at Pentecost, and many of those who uh, are those who hold to this universal church history. I think three things happen when one says that the church started at Pentecost or 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. I think it falsifies when the church started. It displaces Christ as the position of founder, and it makes the Holy Spirit the founder. But look here again at our text in Matthew 18. Jesus had asked a question of the whole group of his disciples. Remember our uh, study last week. And uh, when you look at this context here, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do, you, do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, and others, uh, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Now, he was asking the whole group of disciples this question. Whom say ye that I am? Now that's if to say, but who do you all say that I am? That's the southern version, okay? Who do you all say that I am? By the way, if I might just point out something here, I believe very important. There are many Christians today who are abandoning the good King James Bible. They're saying, well, that's, that's old-fashioned. It has too many these and thous, and I don't like to read all those these and thous and ye. But you know what? That's a very important feature of our Bible. The King James Bible is an accurate translation, and these words help us understand what is being said. Whenever you have a thou or a thee, you know it's in the singular. It's talking to an individual person. But, let me, uh, but when you have the ye, as you do here in this, but whom say ye, he's talking to a group of people. That's plural. Now, if you go and take one of the modern versions of the Bible, uh, and you read this same passage, they'll have the word you in there. Now, when I say you, do I mean 
you as an individual, or do I mean you all? Well, it could go either way, couldn't it? So you can interpret the, the, the Bible however you like. If it says you, boy, oh, he must be talking to a group of people. No, he could be talking to one person. But here's how I know Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. But then it was one man, Peter, who stepped forward and gave the answer for the group. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as we look at verse 18, again, there are two words here. They're very important. First, there is the word Peter. He says, I say unto thee. By the way, notice how he says thee. He didn't say ye, did he? He said ye, thee. I'm talking to you, Peter. Because you're the one that was bold enough to give me the answer, and you gave me the right answer. He says, I talking to you, Peter, I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word Peter there is, uh, comes uh, from the Greek word petros, which according to Strong's Accordance means a piece of a rock or a name, Petrus, an apostle. It's translated Peter 161 times, and then it's also translated stone one time. And then there's the word rock, in the Greek word petra, meaning a mass of rock, literally or figuratively, a rock, a cliff, or a lodge. Now, this verse is often used by the Roman Catholic Church to indicate that Peter was the first pope. And to give such a translation is to abandon all rules of biblical interpretation. Christ was using the comparison of Peter's name as a small stone or rock, a little piece of a rock, Petros, with the rock, Petra, which, on which he would build his church. And this large rock, or this bedrock, if you please, that Jesus was talking about was the confession that Peter made in verse 16, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was that which Christ would build His church. Jesus would build His church by the fact that He was Christ, the Son of the living God. And so you see Jesus Christ, the founder of the local New Testament church. And so now we're addressing the question of when it started. Now, after caref uh, the careful Bible student will uh, accept that it started, uh, if it started on the day of Pentecost, I think we need to be careful there. Look with me at several verses, uh, since the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28. And notice there it says, And God had set some in the church, first apostles. Now, if there are going to be apostles set in the church, is this a universal, invisible church? Well, how can it be if there are going to be flesh and blood apostles? The first office that God set in a local church, the ecclesia, was that of apostles. Remember that Paul is writing to a specific local church and whereby all Christians can benefit from his teachings, we must do so in the context of them of him writing to this particular local church. And so when, uh, uh, when, this setting of, when did this setting of apostles take place? 
Well, again, we have to use the Bible as our commentary. And if we turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it gives us the time when this took place. In Luke 6, 12 and 13, it says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called. Remember the definition of church. The called out of. He called unto him his disciples, and he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. And so Jesus, in obedience to his Father, spent the night in prayer, after which he called his disciples around him. And it was from that group of disciples that he chose twelve apostles. These twelve would become the nucleus with which Christ would start his church. These twelve apostles are in the church long before Pentecost ever takes place. And when Christ called them to follow, they become a distinct entity, a closely knit group, a called out body of believers. And Christ is their sole head. They forsook their former associations, they became followers of Christ. He was their pastor, their good shepherd. Now, time does not allow us to fully explore this concept of the church being formed before Pentecost, but let me just quickly give you some reasons. And you probably won't have time to write these down, but uh, you can ask for them later if you'd like. But uh, uh, the church was started before Pentecost, I believe, because Christian believers had the gospel before Pentecost. They were converted. They were baptized. They had Christ as the head. They were instructed in church truths. They were called to obey Christ. They were ordained. They were commissioned. They were organized for their needs. They had a missionary program. They had a teaching program. And they had a healing program. Uh, They had the promise of a permanent church. They had church discipline. They had divine authority. They had essentials of church life. They had true church democracy. They had qualified pastors. They had the Lord's Supper. They had the Holy Spirit. They had divine power to do Christ's work. They sang in the midst of the church. They had prayer meetings. They had business meetings. They were united and added to Christ as their cornerstone. Now, all of these things could use a lot more explanation, I realize, but again, time does not allow us to go through them individually. But Jesus Christ is the founder of the local New Testament church. And I believe here in Matthew chapter 16, where we find the first mention of this word, He is starting that church. He's beginning to organize it. He's beginning to build it. It took Him three years to train His disciples on how He wanted His church to function. And from that time to our present day, the gates of hell have not prevailed on the church that Jesus Christ built. And that brings us to the last area of our instruction this morning, that is the protection of the church. Our text here says, again, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promises to build His church, but He doesn't promise that His building program will not be carried on without opposition. Jesus' words imply that the church that He promises to build will be under threat from the gates of Hades or hell. Now stop and think about the purpose of gates. Simply put, gates are meant to do one of two things. They either keep something out that wants to get in, or they keep something in that wants to get out. 
Uh, sometimes we use gates for our kids <laughs> when they're little. We want to keep them out of some, pl- some room. Or we want to keep them in their room so they can play with their toys. We do that with our pets sometimes. We have gates that keep them in a place or out of a place. And that's what the reason uh, for gates is. Uh, and surely the forces of the devil, the evil one, seeks to hinder ch- uh, churches in either of these two ways. The, our enemy, uh, uh, the devil, seeks to tirelessly oppose the plan of God to redeem fallen people through the gospel. And he seeks to prevent any of those who are separated from God and who are helplessly in his clutches from being delivered from uh, the kingdom of darkness. And if they become redeemed, they are destined to be his judge on the great day of judgment, according to Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. And so as an offensive measure, the gates of Hades or hell would seek to seal its helpless victims inside and prevent the gospel from ever setting these people as prisoners free. But the enemy also seeks to prevent the message of the gospel from going forth into the realms of darkness, coming into places in which it has taken occupation and held people as prisoners through the fear of death and the snares of sin and taking captivity captive. And so as a defensive measure, the gates of hell would also seek to prevent the gospel from entering into its territory. What's more, the gates of a city were often symbolic in the scriptures for uh, that place where authority figures of the city met to decide important matters concerning what goes on in that city. And so it may even be that the gates of hell is meant to speak symbolically of the principalities, the powers, the rulers of darkness of this age and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places against whom the Bible says we wrestle in Ephesians chapter 6. Well, Jesus doesn't give us the impression that the building of His church will go on without opposition. There's a war going on in the heavenlies over the redemption of souls. And the eternal destinies of powerful spiritual beings are at stake. Jesus speaks to us realistically here about the gates of hell. You just have to examine the history of churches over the past 20 centuries and you know that the gates of Hell have often sought through one means or another to destroy churches and to hinder the life-giving message to, to fallen humanity. But then as you see what Jesus says about the church's fierce opposition, you notice that he says uh, what he says about its ultimate security. He affirms that he will build his church and the promises, promises here, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It would try to overcome the institution of the local church. And there are some churches that have fallen by the wayside. Perhaps you know of a church that is no more because it closed its doors. Has the gate, have the gates of hell prevailed against the church, the local church? No, there are still local churches going on. I'm not talking about necessarily an individual church that has closed its doors, but there are still those continued on, have continued on over the years. Some people say, well, they kind of, uh, they kind of all went away at one time and then 
uh, through the Dark Ages, and then all of a sudden through the Reformation, everybody saw the light and they kind of revived again. No, there's always been New Testament churches from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell have not prevailed against them. We can go back in history and we can see different small groups. Maybe it was a small group, maybe it was a very small minority, but they were there. Someone might ask, well, what about all the churches that are no longer around? Some have apostatized, some have closed down. Hasn't Satan gotten into the churches and caused division and brought havoc to once good churches? Yes, churches fall by the wayside, but there has always been Bible-believing churches in existence since the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have His promise. We have His promise. Now I want to remind you what I put in the bulletin this morning, something to think about. When you believe, what you believe about the church should come from the Bible. Because what Scripture says about the church is true. One could argue that the church is second in importance to the New Testament, uh, to Jesus Himself, because the church, that is the local visible church, is the, in fact the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ in this location. Without Christ visibly or physically here, we have His church as a manifestation on this earth. Jesus is no longer here on earth, but He has His church here to be the visible part of His body. All the truth of the New Testament is obeyed in the context of the truth. Now, let me ask you something in closing. Are you saved? Has there been a point in time when you placed your trust in Jesus Christ the Son of the living God. Remind you that going to church, church membership even, giving to the church in the offering does not save you. Being baptized in the waters of the baptism do not save you. But I'm asking you this morning, would you, along with Peter, declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? And you've put your faith and your trust in Him and become a part of the family of God. If not, you may be religious, but you're still lost. Now, if you're saved this morning, what is your relationship to the local church that God has instituted, the Lord has instituted? I wonder, are you faithful? Are you willing to be identified with this church? This church is not my church. It does not belong to a group of people here. It doesn't belong to the, the deacons. This church is the Lord's church. It is here because saved people came and assembled together, organized and said, we want to have a church where Christ is the head and a place where we can come and be edified by faithful preaching of God's word. It's a place where Christians can grow in the Lord. It's a place where missionaries like these dear folks here can be sent out and a great commission can be fulfilled in obedience to the Lord's command. I dare say that these good folks here seeking to go to the mission field have not been going to the universal invisible church to get support. Because the money would be invisible too, I guess. The support would be invisible. 
My question is, though, is what is your relationship to the church that Christ built? Are you living your life in such a way to, to declare with Peter, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Let's pray.